It's another wonderful opportunity we've been given this Lord's Day morning to assemble and to gather in the way that we've done. It's always our desire and honor that our worship will be pleasing in every way to the God of heaven, that it'll be done in truth and in spirit, and that He will certainly be pleased and very much satisfied with our efforts to worship Him today. We're so thankful for each person that's assembled. I know that as we give thought to the title of the lesson today, Taking the Lord's Name in Vain, I would all hope that for the next few moments at least, we can reflect upon not only that text of Deuteronomy 5.11, but perhaps other passages which will shed some light upon our further understanding of what was involved in that commandment. This introductory slide is one that perhaps will have few surprising elements in it, but I do think it's a fair statement that we, we begin our study with it. The Ten Commandments, as we all know, are a rather central part of the Law of Moses. It's not that they were the entirety of the Law of Moses, but they certainly were rather critical elements in it. And in fact, you and I notice that they are referenced on a number of places, both in the Old and the New, in, in the New Testaments as well. At the very outset, couldn't we lay a bit of emphasis upon the seriousness connected to those Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not kill. So God was opposed to murder. Thou shalt not steal. God was opposed to taking that which belonged to another without their consent and without their knowledge. Thou shalt not commit adultery. God was concerned about purity in a sexual way and, yea, in other ways of life as well. God was interested in the truth. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Well, that's just a sampling of some of the comments that might be made. But yet, as you come to the third of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. There might be those that would be quick to say, but it sure seems like we regard some of these commandments in a different way than others. I suppose for the most part, it would be universally agreed it's not a good idea to murder somebody. It's not a good idea to take what doesn't belong to you. And yet right in the midst of commandments that make mention of that is one that says, don't take God's name in vain. Why don't we give some thought to that today? What's involved in this? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Let's start our lesson then with a bit of an identification. And by that I mean this. Let's try to cast a stronger spotlight on some of the features involved and literally what's involved in the statement. Taking the Lord's name in vain. I suppose one of the first thoughts that comes to mind is, for the most part we realize, so that means don't profane God's name. And we all know some of the ways in which that's done. We've all been in places where we've heard others in conversation speak very rough language in which they seem to take no thought at all for using the name of God in a very profane, blasphemous way. Is that what was meant here? Is that only what was involved? I've listed some possibilities there about the third way down that slide. As you and I give thought to often what this commandment would involve, many would suppose using God's name without appreciating the sanctity and the solemnity that goes with that name. Others, we each realize, often use God's name in a time of surprise. 
How often have you ever heard someone either directly or watch interviews on TV in which they're surprised and the first words out of their mouth, Oh my God. Do they understand the name that they're using? Do they appreciate the integrity, the power and majesty of the name they've just invoked? In many cases, it seems the answer would be no. Those kinds of things are included in this. But I would like to ask you to note something pretty carefully. The text said not to take God's name in vain. It did not say not to speak God's name in vain. There's a difference in taking and speaking. It's for sure that speaking would be included, but may I offer the thought it would certainly appear that taking God's name in vain is a broader consideration. It includes other things. There are other matters to be considered. God said, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. May I again say, He did not say, Thou shalt not speak the name of the Lord thy God in vain. What's the difference? What's involved in this? As you close that slide with me, why don't we first define that word take? What does that Hebrew verb mean? As you notice near the bottom of that slide, the word take literally means to carry or to lift. And it was often used in the very ways that you would anticipate. Numbers chapter 1, verse 49. Exodus 23, 1. Genesis 18, 24, just to name a few, where the word take directly occurs in a way to where in some cases a person is carrying something. Maybe they're carrying one item, one element, one matter from one location to another. But it's that same word that appears in the context before us. You might want to take note as you're looking at that listing at Exodus 23.1. It's in that place the word occurs, but it probably occurs in a way that will have a great bearing on some of our discussion actually this morning. In Exodus chapter 23, verse number 1, the inspired writer pointed out to us in using that word that it reads like this, Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Now you may notice the English word take didn't occur anywhere in the verse, but the Hebrew word, that's the background of the word take as it's interpreted, occurred like this, raise a false report. That same word there is the word take as it's interpreted here in Deuteronomy 5.11 as well as that text in Exodus 20 wherein were commanded, they were at least, not to take the name of the Lord in vain. As you and I prepare to transition to the next slide, what we've thus learned is we're going to be investigating taking, carrying, as it relates to the name of the Lord. So what did God demand of the ancient people of Israel? When He said, don't take my name in vain, what did God mean by that? This next slide will continue our journey. May I offer three considerations that I have grouped in the following way. First of all, let's cast a bit of a spotlight on probably what first came to mind as you and I thought about taking the name of the Lord in vain. Speaking His name irreverently. In whatever manner of conversation and in whatever means of language would be involved, using His name in an irreverent way. We all know quite well both from biblical consideration as well as from our own observation that it's entirely possible 
to utilize and speak God's name in a way that's beneath the dignity characteristic of it. God's name is holy. Psalm 111 verse number 9 highlights, Holy and reverend is His name. Surely one of the things that comes to our appreciation, there are people on this earth who choose to call themselves by the name reverend, believe it or not. And yet we notice here that that kind of a word in reference and name attaches to and signifies and is associated with none other than the features related to the name of God Himself. Those kind of people are making a terrible mistake. Might we notice then God's name, given that it's holy, should be treated with holiness. It should be honored in that way. His name is exalted Psalm 148, verse 13, highlights the excellent, exalted characteristic of the name of God. And God demands it be treated that way. So again, could we ask, those that utilize the name of God in surprise, as an interjection, are they using that name in appreciation of the exalted, excellent character of it? In many cases, the answer would appear to be no, and that's a tragedy. In Psalm 29, verse number 2, the name of God is highlighted again with the excellent and exalted character that it has. God demanded the ancient Israelites to not only have an understanding of that, but to utilize it, that is to say, the name of God, in a way that was mindful of its exalted, excellent character. In Psalm 34, verse number 3, God's name is particularly said to be excellent. Now, might we notice, my name doesn't fit these categories, and neither does yours. However, we do desire our name to be honored. Do you enjoy it when someone besmirches your name? Do you take it lightly when someone insults it? Probably not. God demanded His name be honored carefully, with the thought of the exalted nature that that name has. It is in that way you and I can then notice that the Word of God rather strongly placed a note of condemnation upon the use of forward language. And that word forward again is the King James rendering in verses like Proverbs chapter 9 verse number 10. Forward language that surely highlighted to the ancient people of Israel that they needed their language, including their references to God, to be appropriately chosen and to be worded with care. To not do that would take us back to the very statement of the third commandment. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. In other words, there was a matter of guilt attached to the irreverent, improper, flippant, trivial use of the name of God. It might well be that some of the following observations could then be ours. You and I realize that God's name is still holy. It's not that that ended with the ending of the book of Malachi. God's name is still excellent. God's name should still not be used trivially. It ought not to be used irreverently. That reminds us that though the world may often, it seems, use God's name that way, you and I, as those who desire to serve Him, we will never fall into that kind of trap. 
we will desire to always use His name in a holy fashion, in a sacred fashion, in an appropriate fashion. Could I invite you to note a few of those verses that you'll find there at the end? Verses such as Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. As Jesus Himself was speaking, He made the following point. He, in fact, emphasized that God shall bring every work into judgment, including what is said with specific mention of idle words. Words you see that may well not be positive or negative, only neutral. God's even going to make mention of judgment with respect to that. If that be true, what about those that would be negative? Those that would be blasphemous? Those that would call into question the reverence of the name of God? Surely, you and I realize how important it is to not allow the tendency of human language to detract from the worthiness of the name of God so that you and I would use that name as we should. At this point, as we each make application of that, may we try then to refer to the name of God, the name of sacred things that are approved by God, to describe them and use them and refer to them in a way that is holy, in a way that is set apart, in a way that's consecrated. For again, to fail to do that does not reflect well upon us. It does not reflect well upon the God whom we strive to serve. I suspect that most of what we've just discussed, this using God's name in a reverent way, probably that's what has come to mind so easily. While we're at that thought, though, let's go ahead and add another. I've chosen to put it in a different category, but surely it's connected to the former one. Swearing by the name of God. The reason I mention it that way is because the Word of God makes reference to that activity, doesn't it? You may remember that in Leviticus 19, verse number 12, God gave explicit commandment not to swear falsely by His name. Now that again was a kind of behavior that had come to be somewhat prominent or at least regulated. May I say that that book of Leviticus isn't the only place it was found. In Leviticus 18.21, the God of heaven rather directly told the children of Israel that in no way were they to profane His name. I would think that verse alone would have an interesting bearing on some of our thoughts today. Don't take the Lord's name in vain, and now don't profane my name. Oh, how strongly then one can imagine what was involved in some of the ancient considerations of swearing? We know this in part because of the Lord's description of Matthew chapter 5. Beginning in verse 33 of that chapter, Jesus, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, pointed out that one of the activities, one of the things that was done, was that folks would swear. Now you and I may have heard something like that today, but it was done for the following reason. It was used to strengthen or to add an element of trustworthiness to what was said. In other words, the person didn't just make a declarative statement. They would say, by the name of God, by the altar of the Lord, by the temple of God, I promise to do this. Well, you notice what they're asserting. That their word by itself wasn't sufficient, at least in their mind. They thought they could add an element of strength 
an element of trustworthiness to what was being said if they pronounced a swearing on something such as the name of God or the temple or a sacrifice made at the tabernacle or temple. But of course Jesus had something to say about that, didn't He? If you'll look with me at that Matthew chapter 5 passage, Jesus had this rather strong and definitive statement to make about it. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. That surely has a fair amount to say to you and me about the language we choose to use. It should always be that our word is our bond. When we speak to someone, it should be our desire to speak the truth. And when we make affirmations to them to follow through on what we have said. We ought not need to add swearing to the name of God, swearing on some other element of matter such as other features in our life or those of our parents. Jesus said again in verse 37, Yes, yes, no, no, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. That kind of swearing, you see, was something that the Lord said ought not to be done. James also had comments to make concerning this in James chapter 5, verse number 12. In the closing chapter of that little five-chapter book of James, there the particulars are worded like this. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. There are many ways in which the wording of that statement in James surely sounds familiar to that which the Lord had said. But isn't it amazing that the two so powerfully agreed and helps us understand, not only today, but surely of that time, how useful it was not to be given swearing, to be those whose word is that which we intended to convey. Again, I mentioned as a second category that issue about swearing because there are those who sometimes will use the name of God in connection to that, and the Lord said, don't do that. It is at that point we have reached a third category. We've discussed irreverent use of God's name, and in the context of swearing, what about this one? And in this sense, we return full circle to that which we began. God again said not to take His name in vain. And we've already learned that word take apparently involves more than just speaking. It would seem, in light of several verses, we'll now consider this was what was involved in it. Inconsistent living. Those who made some pretense in terms of being connected to God, but their lives didn't match it. Their life was inconsistent with their profession. That would be taking the name of the Lord in vain. 
Isn't it true the ancient people of Israel were to live as the very representatives of God and His truth on earth? We encounter that in Zechariah 8. Wasn't it true that though that occurred late in the Old Testament, that it had been a part of what God anticipated? His people, the people of Israel, were to stand strongly as those on earth representative of the nature of the one true God of heaven. And their lives were to represent and show forth to yea all others that conviction, His existence, and His truth. As you'll notice on that slide, people of Israel were thus expected never by their behavior to cause others to abhor service to God. We encounter that directly in 1 Samuel 2. That passage among a number of others perhaps leads us to note the final book in the Old Testament. I thought it was stated most strongly here, at least as a part of our consideration this morning. Would you look with me at Malachi chapter 2? We'll look at verses 7, 8, and 9 at least in reading and then make a few comments about the interesting considerations we find in that little minor prophet. Malachi chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse number 7. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore... Have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law? One of the things we find from a passage such as that one is, those who ought to have been some of the most noteworthy defendants of the truth of God, the priests, you'll notice that their profession was not the same as what they claimed. They said one thing, but lived in a different way. And they even caused people to stumble at the law. May I notice that you and I could do something rather similar to that today. We may be the very people who are seen on Sunday morning at the church building. Or perhaps Wednesday evening or Sunday afternoon. But does our life tomorrow and Thursday and yea Saturday and the other time periods of the week, does it match what we profess? Is our life consistent with what we profess? That's a very interesting and very profound question, isn't it? Some of the remaining considerations on that slide will point us to some New Testament applications like this. May I say, as a person who is a Christian, we are wearing the name of God because Christ is a second member of the Godhead. And He Himself, of course, is God, Philippians 2, verses 5 and following. And thus, if I so live, I can take His name in vain. If my life is not defensible in comparison to the truth of the gospel, if it's such that I too could cause others to stumble by my behavior, any of us could do this. Look with me at some of these verses, such as 1 Timothy 4, verse number 12. Paul admonished Timothy in this regard. Remember, Timothy was a servant of the Lord. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. In word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, in purity. Timothy's life, though no doubt younger than many to whom he's preached, 
It was to be a life representative of directness, an example of love, an example of purity, an example of faith. May I suggest that that kind of principle should apply to each of us. Is your life and mine an example to all who witness that are neighbors to us that we are a person of faith? Faith in the Lord, faith in the nature of Christ and His gospel. It would certainly be a sad thing to hear the comments of no doubt some that you and I may well have had in conversation. Have you ever had heard someone say, I live just as good as they do. I don't see any reason to go and be a part of that church. I know the way some of them live. I hope that's never said about any of us. I hope our life is one of integrity with respect to the Word of God so that we would never cause someone else to stumble in that way. Surely, that kind of a person is taking the Lord's name in vain, living one way, but yet giving the impression by way of where they are maybe on Sunday of a different kind of person. You may notice another passage in Matthew 5, verse 16. Jesus admonished those early in the Sermon on the Mount in a very powerful and direct way to represent the nature of God. The interesting way in which that's presented. You and I certainly strive to let our light shine before men and to direct to God the glory that's deservedly due unto His name. Now, as the Lord made that statement, you might recall He used three comparisons. A city set on a hill, a light that's not put under a bushel. And as He made use of those things, He highlighted, let your light, He now made it personal, let your light so shine before men that they may say your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Did you notice our works then manifest glory to God? If your works and mine thus take the Lord's name in vain, then we will not be directing that proper homage and obeisance and glory to Him. Look at that next one in Romans 14, 13. As you approach near the end of the Roman letter, Paul made comment too about this, and it's worded in a very interesting way. Let me read that 13th verse. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Even in matters of expediency, the context would lead us to note that Paul gave warning, he gave teaching relative to never behaving in such a way that your life puts a stumbling block before another. As you can begin to see, taking the Lord's name in vain is more than just mouthing the name irreverently. It may well reflect intricately upon the way I choose to live, the decisions you and I make, and the kind of impact that they have on others. One final verse I thought that would be an appropriate one to consider, at least in terms of principle, is found in the third chapter of Ezekiel. In verse number 20 of that chapter, the ancient prophet Ezekiel was told something. And what he was told was a message that he needed to preach, but it was not a message that I'm sure was received with the greatest of gladness. But it surely has bearing on our discussion today. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness 
and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Ezekiel was commissioned to be a bold and straightforward preacher of the, of the things of God. And even he made this statement that a man that's righteous can choose to turn from the way of righteousness. And in so doing, a stumbling block may well be a part of what's involved in so doing. That you'll notice the man will die in his sin. Oh, how cautious and careful and mindful you and I must be. As you and I transition to the next slide, we've reached the conclusion of our lesson. To take the Lord's name in vain, that was the third of the Ten Commandments. Direct, powerful, to the point it was. How did the Israelites apply it? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. As you and I have learned today, that involved more than just irreverent speaking, though that was included. It was a lifestyle that the Israelites were to present such that they were obedient and faithful and devoted to the things of the Lord so that their behavior would be consistent with their profession as Hebrew people of God. The principle for you and me is evident, isn't it? As Christians, as those who make the profession that we too are dedicated to the Lord, does our life match that claim? Does our life exhibit consistency to it? That's a question we each must ask of ourselves and certainly provide answer. Is God pleased when He looks at your life and mine? Does He see a life representative of the claim that we make? Oh, I hope that He does. And I hope that you and I, as we live in faithfulness to that claim of devotion and faith we've made, that our life will be a stronghold, a fortification in light of the greatness of God's truth in the gospel. It may well be, though, that someone in this assembly has taken the Lord's name in vain, perhaps is living that way, that there is something about your claim that's not the same as what your life would uphold. You know if that inconsistency is there, the Lord still loves you and wants you to make some changes in that way. He implores you to come, and He invites that you will wish for better things in light of your life matching what you claim. Today, as the Lord's invitation is extended, our focus has been taking the name of the Lord in vain. You and I can still do it today, though we may never use profanity, though we may never use inappropriate swearing, we can still live in a way to where our life is inconsistent with what our claim is. And if so, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. We need to repent of that. We need to make confession of it and rush back to the faithful side of our Lord so that our life can be an overwhelming and faithful presentation that we are the Lord's. If we could be of any assistance to someone today, perhaps as one who's never become a Christian, Maybe you would wish to start on the path of a course that leads to heaven so that your life could know the faithfulness and the, the characteristic of the strength of God. We would love to help you today. Would you in belief repent of your sins, confess the name of the Lord, and be baptized? We'd be delighted to help you. 
if you have known that way of life, but perhaps over time you've come to take the Lord's name in vain, won't you repent of that today? Make confession of it and let us pray to God on your behalf. We'd be honored to do it. If we could be of some assistance, Brother Cale has chosen a song of encouragement, and we're going to stand and sing that shortly as an invitation that the Lord extends. If you need to come today, won't you come while we stand and sing?